Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Kai Wortmann, working in philosophy of education at the University of Tübingen in Germany. And I'm here today with Kerd Biesta, who is professor of public education at the Maynooth University in Ireland and professor of educational theory and pedagogy at the University of Edinburgh, UK. We want to talk about his new book, Obstinate Education, Reconnecting School and Society. In this book... Kert argues that education has the duty to resist in order to contributing to emancipation and democratization. The book brings together papers written over the last 15 years by a prolific and outstanding writer so that the book won the annual book award from the Philosophy of Education Society of Australasia last year. Obstinate Education consists of nine chapters packed with various lines of arguments which were always a pleasure to follow. So I'm really happy to have the author here. Kert, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much, Kai. Before talking about the book, can you maybe start off by telling us what brought you into educational theory? Um, yeah, I, I can do. Um, I've always been interested in education already as a child, uh, which some people might find weird, but... Um, I come across other people who also have had this fascination for a long time. Um, I ended up um, in, through interesting turns in my own life as a teacher of physics in health education, uh, which I did for about 10 years. And then I went to Evening University to study, uh, well, in German, it's pedagogy. pedagogy. Um, and I thought I would specialize in theory of, of or what is it, curriculum and in instruction. Um, but I found that so superficial that I ended up actually focusing on the theory and philosophy and history of education, simply because there was yeah, much more depth in, in the discussions in that area. So that's how I ended up in educational theory. Um, and I still enjoy the, the theoretical questions, uh, but over the years I have found that they also are, are really relevant for educational practice. So I always try to connect as much as I can with people who work in schools or in curriculum development or in policy. Um, and there I see that theoretical work actually makes sense and and makes a difference. But that's probably the story so far. Yeah. Maybe we can begin with the title of your book. What does it mean for education to be obstinate? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I thought long about that title, um, and I also checked uh, with, with colleagues here in Britain what sort of the feeling around this word obstinate is, because it, it can be perceived as a bit of a negative word. 
we say someone is obstinate when they say no to everything or don't want to cooperate. Um, and still I felt that that was an important message for the book. Um, and what I do somewhere in the book is to say, I'm not saying that education should just be uncooperative or say no to everything. I, I say what education needs is a kind of informed obstinacy. And what I mean by that is that education or educators should um, think about the questions that come to them. And of course, society wants all kinds of things from schools um, and should never simply say, well, if that's what you want, we will do it. But should always consider this possibility to say no, to say, well, this is actually something you, you shouldn't be asking from us. Um, and I'm I'm making that point, and it's one of the bigger points sort of, of the book, because it has to do with how we think of this relationship between school and society. That's in the subtitle where I say reconnecting school and society. And I see that, um, yeah, quite a lot of developments around schools in many countries have put schools in a difficult position where societies keep saying we want a lot from schools, we want um, high performance, we want that you create good citizens, inclusive society, anything almost you can think of. And schools are constantly put under pressure to do all that. And I see schools suffering from that, teachers suffering from it, students suffering from it. So the book is an attempt to say at, at what point should we actually say, stop, this is going too far, but also what kind of arguments can we use there? And that is sort of what I try to express in the title of the book. Um, and in which ways can school and society be reconnected? Um, I, I use an image in one of the chapters um, where I, I say schools should be closed towards society and open towards the world. So closed towards society and open towards the world. And you can say, well, that's just plain words. But um, what I try to say there is that if we only think of the school as a kind of instrument for all kind of things that society, governments, uh, students, parents uh, want from the school, um, and we forget that the school, you can say, is actually quite a, a special place. So if we only have pressure from one side, then I think um, we are yeah, burdening the school with, with too much. Um, in, in other work, I, I talk a bit more about this by saying the school actually comes out of two histories, and that may be helpful here. On the one hand, you see, and you can read many history books about that, that when societies become more complex, complicated, that the new generation, children and young people, cannot pick up everything they need to know and be able to do. 
by just hanging around. So if a society is just agricultural, you grow up on a farm and you just go with the, the daily work there and, and you become a farmer and you don't need official schooling for that. But when work moves to factories or to offices, then you can say uh, society becomes a bit yeah, disconnected. And then when you grow up as a child, you, you can no longer simply experience all that. And that is one reason where schools begin to emerge, where societies say, okay, we need to make sure that we have institutions that prepare children and young people for the future. Now, in that history, you can say the school is there to do a job for society, you know, to qualify young people, to give them orientation. Um, and that also gives society the right to look at the school and say, schools, are you doing this job well? So that's entirely legitimate that society asks that question to the school. Um, but then... I suggest that there is a, a second history of the school, and you can actually find it in the Greek word for school, skola, which actually means uh, free time, or you can say unproductive time, or time that is not yet claimed by someone. And I find that a really interesting idea as well, where you say, well, in order to grow up, in order to meet yourself, in order to meet the world, you need time. And you don't need a lot of pressure and constant surveillance. And you can say that's the other history of the school, where we actually give time to the new generation to, to come into the world. Um, what I see is that... Education is currently out of balance. It pushes far too much on that first history. It says the school is just there to do what society needs. And it forgets the importance of this second history, where we say we need to slow down, we need to give time, we shouldn't constantly be monitoring young people but in order so that they can yeah, arrive in the world, you could say. Um, and... In response to those two histories, and I think the imbalance that we're experiencing a lot, I'm saying actually schools should be a bit close towards society, not simply accept all these yeah, requests and desires and expectations, a bit of a distance, so that actually we can um, yeah, open the world for students, and that is time. So that's how I... I try to look at this way of reconnecting school and society. And the, the term obstinate then also refers to saying no to the requests of the, or of too many requests yes. from the first history and um, trying to uh, be passionate also about the second and bring this Yes. To, to the forefront. Yeah. Okay. So it's indeed saying no to too much from that first history. So that first history is entirely justified and legitimate, but right. it has become too big. And then you say to say no there 
is because you say yes to this other thing that schools also need to do, to give children and young people time to to arrive in the world. Right. You you also write that there are attempts to domesticate education. Mm -hmm. Whereas you also argue for a kind of public education. Does this also have to do with these two stories? Uh, yes. So again, you can say, yeah, to domesticate, that is to, to try to bring the school under control. Um, and I see that a lot. I see many countries that suffer from, from PISA statistics um, and, and they then think, oh, our, our Our country is too low in the league table and we need to go up in the league table. It completely completely makes people forget what school is also about. Um, so I forgot the line of your question. Sorry, can you go back to the, 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 the okay. term public? What, yes. what then if, if you say no to, to parts of the requests from society? How then would you perceive of public yeah. education? Yeah. yeah. So, um, again, an image I use also in the book is to say all these uh, expectations about the school run the risk of uh, yeah turning the school into a shop where you say, okay, the, the, the school has uh, customers, uh, parents, students themselves, business, government, anything you can think of. Uh, and they just go to the shop and they say, uh, we want this from you and we want this from you. And if you begin to think about the school in that way, a sort of an economic transaction, then the school becomes a, a private institution or it becomes an institution that just needs to serve private interests. Um Or indeed economic interests. Yes, yeah. They can become economic, but there are also parents who say, we want a school that um, gives our children exactly the values that we find important. Okay, yeah. Value. So it, it's also in terms of values, you see that, that some parents say, we don't want the school to, to raise any difficult questions about identity or culture or religion or whatever. Um, so it, it very much then becomes uh, that people say we have our own interests, our own things we want, and the school should do that and nothing more. Um, and there the question with sort of public education comes in. Um, public education, not just schools paid by public money, but also schools that, that understand that they have a a bigger job to do than just satisfy what everyone wants from it. And its bigger job, again, is to spend time with the new generation to look around in the world and to figure out what's going on there, what's possible there, what's going well, what's not going well, and for children to, to find their own relationship to that. And you can say that is a, a public task because it's not simply saying, Let's just give what people ask from the school. But it's to say, as a society, we need to have this, this opportunity. We need to create this opportunity for the new generation to 
to look at the world, meet the world, meet themselves in relation to that. And, and yeah, even if parents say, just make sure that my child can read and write and, and that's enough. As a society, we should say, no, all children deserve more. And, and there you can say the, the public dimension comes in. And this, this is, yeah, I think inevitably connected to questions about democracy. So in a, a totalitarian state, um, the state will just control the school and the school will try to control the student. But in a democratic society where we believe that it's, it's valuable to have a degree of plurality and, and difference, the school has an, a, a public responsibility, you could say, precisely to make yeah, future democratic living possible. One notion you develop in the book is the notion of becoming world-wise. Mm. And this reminds me of what you just say. But also, it seems to me that the term has a more technical meaning um, in opposition to the notion of becoming symbol-wise. Yes. Can you elaborate a bit on this? Yeah, um, so the discussion itself um, is, a, is a very, what is it, particular discussion um, that comes out of ideas that, that say language, symbols, frames of interpretation are really important. And, and people who work in, in thinking about that, they say we should not just um, yeah, give students sort of the, the knowledge to, to look at the world or at situations from different perspectives, but we should also help them to see what, what perspectives actually are. Uh, and this is the idea that, that education should uh, yeah, help students to become symbolized, to, to understand that when you look from, say, a, a Western perspective, The world looks very different than when you look from an Eastern perspective or that when you engage with the world from a secular perspective, things turn out very different than when you look from a religious perspective. And the idea of symbol wisdom is that you also understand what these uh, perspectives do. Um, and the, the discussion I try to get into in that chapter is to say, That's fine, but, but maybe it's still not enough. Uh, and then I play with the difference between, you can say, yeah, symbol wisdom and, and world wisdom. Um, where with, with becoming worldwide, I'm trying to say, uh, look, living a human life um, is not just a matter of having all kinds of perspectives and understanding how all these perspectives uh, work um, because that, that kind of yeah discussion is, is never ending. But you can say at the same time, the world goes on and irrespective of our perspectives, um, we find things in our life Uh, questions, situations, uh, 
appeals that we need to respond to. Um, and I think to to be open to that as well, and probably also to to see that living a human life is not just a question of finding a perspective on the world, but actually to engage with what yeah I would say the world throws at you, that still requires something else. And that's what I try to hint at with, with saying it's wonderful if people are symbol-wise, if they understand that, yeah, that people have very different perspectives and, and outlooks on the world. Um, but beyond that, there is still the ongoing challenge to, to engage with what the world throws at us. And that has something to do with, with being world-wise, you could say. Can you maybe offer an example for what the world could throw at us and what then world wisdom would consist in? Yeah. Um, maybe an example from, from education. Uh, it's a lovely story I came across a couple of years ago. Um, and it was in a, in a project that looked at the collaboration between teachers, um, special education needs, people, uh, educational psychologists. Um, and there was an, um, a description of a conversation that three people, a teacher, I think a special needs educator and an educational psychologist had about a, a particular boy in a primary school. Um, and the educational psychologist had done all kinds of tests in order to find what what was wrong with the boy or what the problems were. The special needs teacher also had done all kinds of things. And they were talking about this. Um, and then the psychologist said, I think that sort of the diagnosis with this boy is this, this, and this. Um, so he, he came with, yeah, psychological symptoms, you could say. Uh, probably it had something to do with uh, attention deficit because that was quite popular at the time. The special needs teacher said, yeah, when I look at it from my perspective, I, I worked with the boy and, and did some tasks and you can do that. And, and there he has, has some problems. Um, and yeah, the teacher also spoke about what she saw in the classroom um, and you can say this is an interesting example of, of then three different perspectives um, on the same boy. Um, so that already shows that we can have very different perspectives on the same reality. In, in this case, it's psychological or special needs and a, a teacher perspective. Um, what was also interesting in that conversation is that um, at some point, They said, yeah, this diagnosis looks right from the psychologist and that the special needs teacher that they also agreed, yeah, these are things the boy needs to work on and, and here things are fine, but that's really an area of concern. And then almost towards the end of that conversation, um, the, I think the psychologist said, okay, so we agree that this boy needs to be taken out of the classroom and needs to get special treatment. And at that point, the teacher said, no, not at all. He is just a lovely boy to have in the group and I don't want him to leave. Um, and for me, that, 
that's a nice example that on the one hand shows that we can have these different perspectives, that these perspectives make sense, but that the question what we do doesn't follow from a particular perspective. Um, so these people agreed that what the psychology said was right and what the special needs teacher said was also correct. And still the teacher said the conclusion is not to take this boy out of the classroom and start sort of treating him with all kinds of special interventions. She said he's a lovely boy in the group and he's really important for what is possible in the group. And that's where we will continue to work with him. So you you can say there there were three people who were first of all symbol wise, they really understood different ways of looking at the boy. But I would say the teacher was world wise to say all of these diagnoses are true, but still my responsibility is for this boy to just be seen as an, a normal boy in a normal classroom and not become special case that needs treatment. So that, that's one way to to say that's where, where being worldwide and, and meeting that situation uh, really yeah, shone through, I would say. One way to look at the story would also be that, well, that was just the symbol wisdom of the teacher, right? There were three different uh, symbol wisdoms and, and I still don't quite get the difference between the 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 specific perspective yeah, yeah. of the three and then your judgment or interpretation that one of this is is something else but world with world wisdom not yeah. just in the wisdom um yeah I'm, I'm, you're right and you can say that's the uh, that's probably what i find frustrating about talking even in terms of symbol wisdom because you can say yeah that's still another perspective and talking about perspectives and and probably what i saw in the teacher is that she said um, all that comes out of these perspectives is true but i feel that um this this boy is yeah needs something else so he shouldn't become you can say an object of all these interventions And I felt that, so I, I would read the situation by saying the teacher responded to something else. But you can say um, that makes this teacher into a good teacher because this teacher sort of gets it that we should never reduce students to a particular diagnosis. But I felt that, yeah, quite powerfully she, she said to the specialists, look, What you say is true, but still I feel that the, the implications we draw from that have been different. But it's, uh, I agree it's, it's, a, it's a subtle difference, but for me it's, um, it, it's somewhere there. So I found several big lines or themes in, in your book. As mm -hmm. I said, the, the book... Um, Uh, collects uh, papers written for all kinds of purposes in yeah. um, books and journals and so on. But I felt that at least two 
themes uh, run through them, mm-hmm. apart from what I already uh, touched upon. One was the idea of network and mm-hmm. uh, and relationality. Uh, how would you how would you relate this uh, notion to the uh, to the two stories or the the overall aim of the book of reconnecting school and society? Um, yeah, there there is um, the the theme of network indeed is there at a number of levels and in a number of ways. Uh, I think one thing I try to do in in some of the chapters is to to show how networks uh, work. Um, And this goes back to a more theoretical or philosophical discussion um, that has been very helpful in my own thinking. And it goes back to the work of uh, Bruno Latour, um, who people who listen to this um, podcast may know or may not know, or they may know Latour from a different phase in his um, career. But quite early on, um, what Latour wrote about is, is the question, what is science? And how has science become so important or, or dominant in modern societies? Now, this question is quite old. And when you look at the discussion around this, I think for good 100 years almost, many people have tried to answer that question, what is science or what is special about science, by saying science produces a particular kind of knowledge. People use the word scientific knowledge, but then that often comes with the idea of this must be a special kind of knowledge. Uh, Some people say, yeah, scientific knowledge is the true knowledge or the real knowledge or the best knowledge. Um, And when Latour sort of tried to engage with that question, um, he did something interesting. He first looked at a lot of literature that tried to make that point, tried to find what is special about science by saying it must have something to do with knowledge. And he just showed that all those attempts actually never managed to to say in what way scientific knowledge is a, a better or different kind of and then Latour said so it, something else must must come in to explain that and then he started to look at, uh, at networks and ways in which sort of networks are established and he developed a kind of theory where he said uh, the, the reason that that science is so omnipresent and looks like it's so important has much more to do with all the, the networks that scientists or people who work under that label are managing to establish um, but also how they are able to connect networks to other networks and then at some point you get very big networks that because they are everywhere 
it looks like they are special. Um, and I find this a, a really interesting way, for example, to look at, um, at science and people's beliefs in science. But there is one other important thing as well there, because this idea to, to say, yeah, science is just very powerful, uh, that often doesn't take what science can do seriously. And Latour says, I'm not contesting that we can fly people to the moon or we can, yeah, we have aircrafts in the sky or we have the World Wide Web working or we have fact science that, that do their work. But Latour said, I am interested in how at, at some point those stories around that or those technologies become sort of the only show in town, as you can say in, in English, and begin to push into the margins other ways of, of doing and thinking. Um, and that is partly how the whole theme of networks sort of figures in the book, uh, where I also try to, to say, for example, in relation to curricula, the knowledge that ends up in school. I'm not contesting that that knowledge is it's irrelevant, but that it's important to see why some knowledge ends up in schools and other knowledge doesn't end up in school, or why some histories end up in history books and, and others uh, don't. Um, and for me, that way of beginning to look at at all these networks and also what they do with us and almost you can say the kind of illusions they, they can create that for me helps to remain sort of critical or at least uh, awake uh, if we constantly only hear that science is special because it, it is a special kind of knowledge. I don't think it's a special kind of knowledge. I do think it's an interesting practice but we shouldn't make claims in terms of, of knowledge, I would say. Um, and for me, this also has to do with, um, again, you can say the, the, the title of the book, the whole question, you can say, of, of margins and centers, uh, of what is big and, and what is small. Um, and then when you look again at these two histories of the school, you can say this, this first history where the school is there to do jobs for what society wants, that has become part of a really big global network. So it's not just an idea, but it's, for example, connected to a lot of measurement and statistics about schools. Um, I already mentioned PISA, the OECD. OECD is a very strange organization. Um, it's the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. So you can even wonder, what do they know about education? Uh, it's not democratically controlled. Um, so it, it hangs in between countries. But they have been yeah, very successful in creating a particular story about schools and their performance. Um, and that is so omnipresent that many people think that that is the only story you can tell. There you can see an example of how this first history of the school 
becomes connected to the OECD uh, and they have a lot of money and a lot of networks themselves, that becomes connected to the particular tradition in educational research that says we need to conduct large-scale uh, randomized controlled trials and then we can find out what works and how teachers should teach and they should only be teaching in in those ways proven by, by science. And that network becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and I, I understand where it's coming from, but my worry is that that even, even more creates an, an imbalance and a very unhelpful situation. Um, so what I do in the book is, yeah, always to, to provide arguments to push back to that and say, of course, it's interesting to know how students perform. But don't think that a test that you do at the age of 15 in a sample of students can tell the whole story about education. So there is roughly the, the connection back from, yeah, looking at, at networks um, and how the building of a particular network around contemporary education is really creating an unhealthy imbalance, I would say. The other... Um... A uh, theme that mm -hmm. runs through the uh, book, I think, is the question of critique, yeah. and it is uh, in it is almost present in every every uh, chapter. But one uh, focuses on the question of critique explicitly, and uh, you offer three ways of thinking about critique which you call critical dogmatism, transcendental critique, and then deconstruction. Yeah. Can you offer the listeners what kind of ideas of critique you mean by that? I, I will try, but uh, yeah, you've read the chapter and it's uh, quite a technical discussion as well. Um, I, I wrote that chapter. It's the oldest chapter in the book, actually, but I still feel that there is something important uh, there. Um, I wrote it at a time when there was uh, quite a big movement around critical, critical thinking in, in education. Uh, and I think the idea of critical thinking is still there. I, I encounter it an awful lot in higher education, for example, where it's constantly said, yeah, we need to help students to, to think critically um, but also in, in school education. Um, and that's, that sounds nice, but then when you begin to ask, well, what actually is it to, to think critically, it, it quickly becomes uh, more complicated. Um, and what I do in this chapter is partly to analyze discussions around critical thinking, um, but also to show that there are, yeah, three different ways to, to engage with that question of what it means to be critical. Um, one I call critical dogmatism, and it's not a term I've invented, so it comes out of the literature. Um, I find it very helpful because you can say, well, one way in which you can be critical is to say, I have certain values, certain beliefs, And I use that as a, a 
standard or a yardstick to look at things I encounter and then I can say, I don't agree with that. I think that is bad because it, it doesn't meet my values or beliefs. And of course, that that's not unimportant because we can say in the kind of societies in which we live that these are democratic societies. And we can have all kinds of reasons for valuing democracy. And then we can look at other societies and say, I don't think that society is really democratic. Um, and that is a judgment you can make where you say we, we have the value of democracy and some societies really do not live up to that idea. What we now know, I think even better than when I wrote this uh, text, um, and here I'm referring to what happened around Trump in the United States, uh, people can simply turn back and say, well, those are your values, we have other values, so too bad for you. Um, that makes critical dogmatism, you can say, vulnerable. Uh, and again, in, in philosophy, that's known. So you can say one way to be critical is to, to start from a value and you use that value to judge. But people can always turn back and say, well, I, I don't agree with your values or I have different values, so your critique doesn't hold. On a global scale, this is also, I think, happening around China and the whole question of democracy, uh, which I think in Hong Kong is becoming very visible and, and very urgent, uh, well, where China simply says, yeah, Western democracy is one idea, but it's not our idea. So if any democracy is emerging in Hong Kong, we just need to suppress it because we have different ideas. So that makes critical dogmatism vulnerable, although it, I, I do want to emphasize there is also something important about it. We shouldn't simply say it's impossible to, to make any judgment. We should be clear about what the, the values are upon which we make judgment. Now, a different way to, to do this is to say to be critical is not to just have a value and judge things in relation to that value, but it has to do with being consistent. Um, and this is what in the chapter I, I call transcendental critique, and that's sort of philosophical discussion behind it. It says, um, if you criticize something, you can only do that if you do not contradict yourself in, in doing that. I'm now thinking hard about what would be a good example of that. Um, <clears throat> And maybe it's it's even there in, in the chapter. Um, so if um, if you say to a child like, uh, you, well, we say things like you should never do this or you should never do that. Um, what children are really good at, and particularly teenagers, sort of in secondary school, they will always look back at the teacher and will say, "But you just did that," or you. You say that to us, but it looks like there are other rules for teachers. Um, when I was in secondary school, smoking was a really big issue. 
we were told um, that students in school cannot smoke. And then when you looked at the room where all the teachers had their coffee and lunch, it was always full of smoke. So there you can say, well, teachers have no ground to stand on because they cannot say you shouldn't smoke. And then they go into the room and they smoke. So this is a dip. This is a, yeah, maybe a small example. But this actually says, where can we find a standard for critique? Not by, by just saying these are our values, but by making sure that we, we do not contradict in, in, in how we say something, what we're actually saying. Um, this is a more interesting way to look at, at this, at, at critique, and maybe it's a little less vulnerable because at least we can sort of look at each other and say when someone is, is critical or criticizes something, we can then always say, but what are you doing there? Are you living up to your own standards you're applying there? Um, now this, and again, the discussion is very uh, technical, um, maybe also for listeners. Um, this has something to do with the, the relationship between the, the critical comments you make and sort of the, the conditions of possibility upon which you rely there. And then I go into the next step of the philosophical discussion and say, actually, um, as, as human beings, we, we can never have total understanding or control over these conditions of, of possibility. That looks a bit like the, the story of uh, Baron von Munchausen, who somewhere says I, that he drew himself out of, uh, what is it, a pool he was sunken into. And that's, of course, what we cannot do as human beings. We cannot pull ourselves up. We cannot step over our own shadow. Um, and out of that... Then a different way to look at the, the whole question of critique sort of emerges, and this comes out of French philosophy and Jacques Derrida, um, and the idea of, of deconstruction that, that actually says we can never sort of yeah be in total control of of what we are are criticizing. There is always a gap and always an, an opening. And then what Derrida is saying, that's, that's actually not bad because that little gap or that little opening or the, the thing that we cannot get under control, that precisely allows for the possibility for something to, to come in that we couldn't sort of predict or foresee that would come in. Um, and then Derrida says, to, to always keep the door open, you could say, for what we cannot imagine that may happen, that is a question of, of justice. Um, and there Derrida says, this is an important and, and different way to think about what being critical means. Precisely not to say to be critical is to think that we can sort of get everything in control but with this image of saying actually to be critical also means to, to always leave the door open um, because other things may arrive and emerge that we can not yet 
or C. And that's, that's sort of what I try to do in that chapter, to start with saying critique can be very powerful and very strong, but actually when you look at the position out of which we do that, that position is quite vulnerable. And in a sense, turn that on its head and say that vulnerability means that we should always be be open to to be surprised because these surprises, the things that escape our control, could actually be very good and and worthwhile. And and just to finish on that, um, this is a very abstract philosophical discussion which I think is really important in the discussion about critical thinking. Um, but there is also an educational point in it because this image of leaving the door open to something new that may arrive, for me, that is also about children being born in the world. That's actually quite a miracle that constantly new human beings arrive in this world and we have no idea how their lives will unfold. But also as a teacher, the, the moment I, I like best but also find very scary is always the start of the school year where you walk into the classroom and suddenly there is a new group of students there. And that is also that same moment where you don't know who these people are. They don't know how their life will unfold. And to be open to that, that newness for me also speaks to this whole question of critique. That's a long answer, but that's, that's roughly what I try to do. For me, I, I, I always, th I also thought, uh, while you were explaining this, um, about the second story because the second story of the school of course also needs the claim that there is the potential of something new and unforeseen Absolutely. which cannot be controlled and requested from outside but just can emerge within the school if you give children and teacher free time. Yeah, And then um, I always sort of add to that. So I think you're absolutely right in making that connection. Um, it is really important that we give time and provide opportunities for things to emerge and for human beings to emerge. That doesn't mean that everything that emerges there is simply fine. That I would say is a, a romantic idea of education where you just say, oh, because it, it comes from the child, it must be good. Um, there is still important work to do, you can say, on the one hand, to, to let things emerge, to allow students to express themselves. But then there is also the hard work to, to look honestly at what students express um, and see, yeah, is, is what you're expressing, is that, what is the value of that? Is that going to, to help you in your life or not? So it doesn't stop by just saying the best school is the one where all talents can emerge and all expressions can be done. And then the difficult educational work is to look at all that and say, okay, what do we think of that? So there is a, a moment of, of judgment and there are forms of, yeah, I would say extreme child-centered education that just say everything that comes from children is, is good. 
that's an educational disaster as well. Right. You also distinguish between ideas in education that put the chill child in the center and then the teacher or the curriculum, mm -hmm. whereas you argue for a world-centered education. Yes. Yeah. Maybe this is also connected with this. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> um, yeah, education that's only top-down, that only says teachers should be in control and students should do what teachers say and they should follow the curriculum. That's not real education because that gives no opportunity for voices of students at all. But the solution for that is not to say, let's just all these voices emerge and let's make that into one big sort of uh, expression. That's why I, I really don't like schools that say, if you send your child here, we will make sure that all their talents will develop. Um, and this is this idea of, of world-centered education because, of course, children come with new talents, with new ideas, with new initiatives. Uh, and to figure out what, what's of value there, these initiatives need to meet the world, you could say. Um, and therefore, I would argue that the, the real orientation for education should always be this encounter with the world, with the material world, with the living world, with the, the social world in order to see of all these new things that, that the new generation brings into the world, which ones are of, of value and which are not of value. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, that's difficult educational work, but I feel that, that there precisely we need education. Well, Gert, we've taken up a lot of your time. My last question is, what are you currently working on? Yes. Um, Next month from when we are recording this, so that's in, in, in July, um, another book will come out, uh, which indeed has the title World-Centered Education. Oh, what a, what a coincidence. Yeah, so maybe <laughs> we, we need to have another conversation at some point in the future. Um, so that's where I, um, yeah, what I've tried to do is to, to make this point about the, the importance of of the world in education um, in, in the best way uh, I can. And um, yeah, so I'm still quite full of, of that book uh, because it's all quite fresh and new. And I'm just curious to see what readers will think of that. Um, and for me, that idea of world-centered education is also really to move beyond all these strong voices that say education should be curriculum-centered. It's just about getting the curriculum in the student, and we need a lot of cognitive science or neuroscience to do that. For me, that's just too limited. But I, as I said before, I also remain worried about two romantic sort of child or student-centered conceptions of education that forget sort of the reality check, as I, I call it. So with that book, I try to do that. Um, and interestingly, that also brings me back again to the whole fascinating question of, of teaching and teachers. And I think that's where I currently am, 
trying to get as closely as possible to yeah what the the, the special nature of the work of teachers is and why we really need to support that so that's where my yeah my my current work is and i'm enjoying doing that in sort of theoretical explorations um, but also as as closely as i can to um, teacher education which i think is is an important field so that's roughly where i am today that sounds very fascinating and it indeed sounds like a continuation of many topics we touched upon today yeah. Thank you very much for joining me on the New Books Network. You're very welcome. Thanks very much for the opportunity.